Here at Tech Stalks, we constantly strive to spotlight authentic music trailblazers, which is why we're stoked to have Tech Stalks styled by Ray-Ban this summer, helping us in our pursuit of featuring artists who are not afraid to be their authentic selves. Ray-Ban is your reflection in the mirror of your truest self. It's the shade on a hot summer's day. It's your own focus regardless of any spotlight that may be on you. Together, Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban are saying, if you've got a challenge for us, no matter what it is, you're on. You can't predict the light, but with Tech Stalks and Ray-Ban, you're always ready to capture it by living each day in the moment. Follow the light at www.rayband.com. If you had told me at the beginning of 2020 that I would start a podcast that would go on to become the number one music podcast on Apple Podcasts for several weeks running, secure two sponsorships with Toms and Ray-Ban, and wrap a giant 15-episode season three all before the start of 2021, I would have told you to get the fuck out because what? I would have never thought that Tech Talks would achieve all that it did in its first year especially not after the first lockdown threw us a massive curveball before we'd even launched yet. And yet, here we are, ready to embark on our second year and fourth season in the game, and for that, I am extremely thankful. So if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you will know that before we move forward, we like to look back at the season that was. And wow, season three was something else entirely. Now, I'm not going to pick my highlights from all 15 episodes because we'll be here until Rihanna or Frank Ocean drop another album. Instead, I'm going to give you my top five moments from across the season. And believe me when I say that this was not an easy task. But now, let's look back. I've spoken about this a lot over the last few months, but I was the most nervous in the lead up to my interview with Casper Nilves because I really didn't want to screw it up. Because... It was my first time being introduced to him, but also it was my first time interviewing him. But it ended up being one of my favorite episodes of the season, mainly because of how he laid all of his cards down and nothing was off the table to talk about. So when I snuck in a little question about his beef with AKA over the years, I really was not ready for his blunt answer. Let's take a listen. I need you to level with me real quick, right? Yeah. So, so as far back as I can remember, you and AKA have been beefing, right? You yeah. guys are like, you guys are like Batman and the Joker. I'll let you decide who's who though. But, but what, the, <laughs> but what, what's the situation between the two of you currently? Like, I know that yeah, there's a boxing was, match scheduled yeah, for 2020 yeah. run, but like, what, yeah. what's the vibe? I don't like that guy, man. He, I don't like him. I don't like people like him. You know what I mean? I'm, um, I'm a I'm a kid from the hood who believes in humility and respect. Like that's just what I was raised on. You you don't disrespect people and you respect people and you respect everyone. And you know, uh he, he walks around like he's he's a big deal and he's not, you know? And um his friends and the industry are afraid of him. You'll never see the industry call out AKA for nothing nothing it's always just fans you'll never see like someone in the industry actually say something about him because they i think they're afraid of him and i'm the only guy who can tell him you know man you're not who you think you are you're actually a small boy you know what i mean so that's where it started and um we tried to mend it for a, 
a few years and I would meet this guy and we'd speak, yeah, whatever, we cool. And two weeks later, he's back to his stupid things. I'm just like, man, this guy's got issues. You know, I don't know if he's bipolar or I don't know, but um, I don't like him. Um, that's just what it is. And he just crossed the line when he saw it, my parents. And then I was and like, that, you know, that was completely out of line. You don't, you, know, you don't go there. And he went there. So I was like, I mean, this is not talking now. Now we need a fight. And um, it wasn't going to be a parking lot, bro. It, it had to be something where I had to uh, protect my brand. And we agreed on having a boxing match. He called me out and uh, I said, facts. So we were supposed to fight this year, but because of COVID, mm-hmm. it was pushed to next year. And uh, soon the contracts will be signed, hopefully, for me, because I'm just trying to fight. If I'm blessed to still be anchoring this podcast in a few years, my interview with the Lumineers is one that I'll look back on with immense pride, because Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freitas were an absolute dream to interview. This was only the second time that we'd interviewed two people at the same time. The first was BCUC back in season one, but that was in studio. This time, the interview with the Lumineers was done mid-lockdown, mid-load shedding, and with all of us in different places, and also with some of the worst technical difficulties we've had on Tech Talks. But producer Matthew Lertz came to the party and made this one of our slickest episodes. And my favorite moment, hands down, was when Wesley and Jeremiah spoke about incorporating some of the most difficult experiences of their lives into their music. Let's take a listen. It was a tough record to write, but I think it also inadvertently sort of brought Jer and I connected us a bit because, mm. you know, through Jer's own life experiences and his own um, experiences with addiction and his family, I think that's um, that's something we ne- never really talked a whole lot about. In the very beginning, we wrote a couple songs about it. You know, we kind of scratched the surface and that was good, but it felt like almost lying dormant. And um, in a weird way, I felt like it was a catalyst to get to know one another, even if that wasn't the intention or, you know, anything like that. It just felt, I feel like I know him a lot more after making this record, even though I was singing about my own life, it sort of brought up things in his life and, and and we, I felt like we were really honest with one another. You know, as somebody who has been affected by family members who are alcoholics. I understand the personal subject matter and and I understand that it's incredibly difficult to talk about. And I don't know if I could be as brave as you and pour my experience into something as personal as an album, especially considering the fact that, you know, there will come a point where where somebody like me, you know, a member of the media will like want to talk about it. Jeremiah, have you had instances where, where fans have reached out to you because they can relate to specifically three's subject matter, but, but anything else where you've had to really pour personal experience into, into a song? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had fans and friends and colleagues and peers and people that I've worked with for years that maybe I didn't know that they had something going on, whether in their personal life or someone in their direct family. And uh, I think that's really special. I think that, you know, these types of things, these, let's just call them these uh, shitty circumstances and shitty events that are inevitable being alive on this planet Earth, um, they're going to happen whether we acknowledge them or not. So the more that we do acknowledge them, I think is really healthy and opens up 
like if you want to open up somebody, it's like the ultimate icebreaker is probably some like terrible tragedy or grief stricken thing. And if it, if it's, if it's the right, you know, if it's the right context, I'll never forget one time we were doing, um, promo for the album one and sort of like a top 40, like a very poppy, um, radio station here in the United States. And, uh, this guy was talking to me and Wes and he was like, all right, we're going to do this interview. And it's like seven fifteen in the morning, you know, like the worst hour to be like engaged with someone. And he's like, all right, we're going to talk about ho and you know, it's going to be great. And then you're like, all right. And then it's like, all right. And we're back. And Jeremiah, your brother died of a heroin overdose. What was that like? And it was just like, and you know, that happened to me in my life and I'm, I'm smiling and I'm joking about it. I hope nobody thinks that I'm a, a psycho for, for making such a, potentially crass joke, but it's like, you know, my brother, Josh, Joshua, um, he died of a heroin drug overdose when he was 19. Um, I guess going on about 20 years ago. And, you know, I pray it's remains to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But under that context, it was just so abysmal and so terrible to have, you know, you think you're going to talk about like songwriting or what's it like to blow up or what's it like, you know, this or that. And, uh, so that, but yeah, like after releasing this album, you know, Wes was speaking on his behalf. And I think for me, like in my corner, um, I just celebrated five years of sobriety, I think in uh, August. And Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, my older brother, he died of a heroin drug overdose, like I said. And, you know, alcoholism seems to run in my family, um, going all the way back to my grandparents and great-grandparents. So it's this thing that, you know, like I said, these things are happening around big cities, small cities, you know, remote villages, um, like the, anywhere, like anywhere people and humans inhabit the world, um, these types of things are happening. So, you know, to hear Wes take all those experiences and put them into, into lyrical, you know, sort of therapy sessions. And then I do remember when we were making the album three, uh, I was like, yo, we just got to take a walk. And it wasn't like, Hey, I don't want you to write about this anymore. It was just like, Hey, this is bringing up a lot of dormant stuff. Um, like this volcano of like grief and like that I thought was dormant. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just was important at the time to communicate to, you know, my writing partner and to my brother from another mother, hey, this is like super heavy. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just need you to know that this is bringing up a lot of what I thought was like dormant or extinct feelings. And I think though that was the light bulb where it realized, okay, well, this is going to actually this is going to turn, this is going to touch people on their experiences. So, you know, whether it's something like an Instagram uh, direct DM or whether it's, you know, when before COVID meeting fans at meet and greets and someone just being like, Hey, I lost my dad to alcoholism or Hey, I lost my son or Hey, I lost my brother to this or that. Um, it's not always the easiest thing to talk about when you're not ready for it. But I think it's like, that's, that's life. You know, I think that's so raw and so crude and that's such a, such a, you know, I use the word awesome. is such an awesome aspect of life. Awesome in the sense of like such a powerful and something that you can't even quite, quite um, comprehend in the, in the moment. So um, yeah, it's definitely opened up the floodgates within the band and then also um, to the fans. And I think that's something that's beautiful. I think that's a good thing. And now just a quick moment to tell you about what's happening over at our gear partner and awesome fam, Tom's the only music store. After several months of meticulous planning, Tom's has launched their one-stop Tom's online store, which means that you can browse and shop their entire range from the comfort of your own home. 
Rising to meet the needs of the current climate, the Tom's online store has a slick interface, is super easy to navigate, and once you've created an account, you can load that shopping cart up to your heart's content. Simply head over to www.toms.co.za to get shopping in the most socially distant of ways. My interview with Small from Black Motion stands out for me for a couple of reasons, but I think chatting to him on the eve of their 10-year anniversary after the release of their final album in this narrative that they've created for themselves, that was very special. But when we both reminisced about their iconic Boiler Room event that they headlined, which was the pinnacle of their campaign with Boiler Room back in 2016, that segment gave me proper goosebumps. Let's take a listen. I've seen you guys perform quite a few times over the last few years, but I think my favorite performance of yours was in Joburg at the end of 2016, and it was part of the Boiler Room Valentine's Stay Tuned oh, series. Yeah. This is Shane True Valentine's of Boiler Room. We're live in Johannesburg, man. Make some fucking noise. We're live in Johannesburg, man. Make some fucking noise. We are so happy to be here. It's like our second home, like our third home. But forget all of that, because up next, I have live for you right now, for the second time, on Boiler Room, my boys, Black Motion! And listen, I drank a lot of whiskey that night, but (laughs) I'll tell you, there wasn't one person that I bumped into who couldn't stop raving about your gig. And and because the boiler room setup is so unique Mm. with the artist playing in the middle of the crowd, Mm. and Mm. it's cool that you mentioned that like, the drums are the heart and the heartbeat of your performance because it's also like very cool being in the middle of that boiler room crowd and you're mm. like the heart of the mm. whole event. Mm. What what stands out in your mind about that night? Sure. Like that that night is also a, a very special night for me because um, th- if you remember correctly, the mood and the lighting there was moonlight. Like it was this violet it was beautiful, blue, yeah. Beautiful blue um, visual in there. And everything was just in the zone and there was a bit of smoke. All I remember in a moment I cannot forget was the peak of our performance where everything just goes like black. Everything just goes, yeah, man, this is our peak. And I remember opening my eyes, coming back from a zone and the people that were literally in front of us in a circle everybody was closing their eyes and everybody's uh, heads was like facing up. And that was, that was, and I got goosebumps just literally looking at that. And I look at the whole circle and everybody's just in their own zone. And that was Mm. the biggest moment for me when I was like, yeah, okay. Some people are touched by the music and what's really going on because with the boiler room setup, it's 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 not people who go there to 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 show off what they're wearing or to show off what they're drinking or whatever. So it was just all about the music and the connection and uh, and the feel good of what the music does to your soul. Another band celebrating a milestone ten years in the industry in 2020 was Mikasa, and I think I can confidently say that Jay Something is one of the most chilled people I've ever interviewed, and it was great to learn all about the band's trajectory. But my favorite moment was when he explained to me the significance behind the first interlude Mikasa have ever written, called Banza and Patsy. Let's take a listen. 
Another track that I think is very beautiful uh, is Banza and Patsy, which is the instrumental yeah. interlude um, off the album. And and I know that Banza and Patsy are, are, are Mo's parents. So so talk to me a bit about how that was conceptualized. Well, the song that comes after that is my favorite record on the album. It's a song called Mamela. And, Mamela. Uh, yeah, Mamela, which means listen. And... Um, and we were actually working on that song and we, we kind of finished up the song and it's, it's such a beautiful song. And and I just felt like it needed, we, we've never done an interlude, you know? Mm. And, and I think it's one of those things that you're like, man, how, how do we make this more of like a storytelling? Like, how do we really convey feelings and emotions? And interludes tend to do that really well if you listen to the album. Like, I love listening to an album, you know, in succession and listening to it as a body like from of From beginning to end, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we... We're now more in the singles and in the, you know, that sort of world. Nah, for me, nah, like, nah, nah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm speaking to, to my people, right? <laughs> um, like for me, creating a body of work is really important. Um, and I love it. Not important. I just love it. And, mm. um, and I, I remember feed that emotion that came from the songs. Uh, I remember saying to Mo, you know, why don't, why don't you and, and Duda create a piece of music that, that is a, an interlude to to Mamela and it conveys the message of romanticism and I, I I made it closer to home for him I said to him listen imagine your dad was still around because um, his dad played trumpet for Mango Groove and a phenomenal man and a phenomenal trumpet player and uh, and and channel that energy of your father and play for for your mother as if he was still around how do you think mm. he would play because I knew that that would convey the emotion that the song carries for me personally. Mm. So yeah, Banza and Patsy, what a beautiful piece of music. And, and that was one take from Mo, right? He just kind of sat, channeled that energy. Yeah, it was, it was rad. And then my fifth and final pick for highlight of the season comes from my interview with Majorzi. Majorzi and I have been friends for a long time and I've been fortunate enough to watch his star rise over the years. I even remember his very, very first single on SoundCloud that he sent me to review on Tex in the City. But as I discovered on our podcast, even though he's my homie, there are tons of things I still don't know about the guy. Let's take a listen. I think a lot of people also forget that Durban was home, is home, to a massive punk scene and hardcore scene yes. as well. That, yeah. that, you know, you also spent a lot of time on because, like, a lot of your friends played in City Ball Misers and Go Go yes, Bronco yeah. and Sibling Rivalry. Tell me, because I can't imagine this in my mind, tell me about... <laughs> punk-loving Majorzi and the gigs that he attended because, you know, we all know how, how the punk scene likes to throw it out. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, we're taking it back to 06, 08 here when, I mean, we used to have, they used to have shows at the Wave House and I remember, like, bands like Hog Hoggity Hog used to come through, mm. uh, Sibling Library also, Half Price used to come through, Get Naked, and it was just, like, amazing. Like, everyone was just so cool and we were all just friends you know and i think every every band that came through was so impressed with the durban scene that they would try and come through as often as possible because we would pack out every show it would be sweating and um i don't know i think i just got into that music from skateboarding when i was younger so you know you we would watch skateboard videos and we'd be like oh we really dig the song on the skateboard video and at that time it was a lot of punk music, so mm. there wasn't. I think now it's a bit more. There's a bit more rap and other music, but back then it was like 
it was punk music. So that's what me and my friends got into. You know, overnight downloading MP3s of Melancholin and No Effects and um, like downloading one song per night and then sharing with your friends. Uh, those were the vibes, man. It was a, it was a really, really good time. I, I really miss those times, actually. So did it ever cross your mind that like you might want to go the punk route? Or did you always see yourself like more love, less protest type music? Well, I mean, I was in like a in like a Christian punk band when I was younger with a, a couple of my mates. So we Shut we up. were called <laughs> yeah yeah. I'd flip if you if I ask my friend, he'll he'll have the songs. But um, we had like um, it was three of us or three or four of us. I don't know. We had rotating bass players. So I honestly, can't remember. I think Louis de Villiers, um, the the artist, was. He played bass for us for a while, I think, you know. And, um, yeah, we, we tried it out. We had a lot of fun. Um, we played, like, a couple of shows, mainly at, like, churches and things like that. But, um, yeah, and then after that, I think you know this, though, but I was in a in a hardcore band after that. With, no, I did um, not know this. No, it was a band called Show and Tell. Um, so the hardcore scene was also huge at that time, like, in like about 07, 08 and with bands like Crossing Point and um, The Rising End. I don't know. I'm saying these names. I don't know if anyone will know them, but they were like quite big. And um, Facing the Gallows was still around at that time. That's when they were like, uh, they had been around for a couple of years and they were big as well. So yeah, I was in a hardcore band. I used to play bass, used to smash things. It was a lot of fun. You used to smash things. Well, okay, not me. The other guys used to. <laughs> it's like I can't imagine this in my mind. And just like that, our mega season has come to a close. You don't have long to wait, though. Season 4 returns on the 11th of February, and we can't wait to share it with you. In the meantime, head on over to www.texttalks.com and catch up on all of our previous episodes – Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Pods, or wherever you catch your podcasts. And remember, that's Tex with a double X. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tex Talks. Huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side. 